welcome everyone to episode 17 of Room of Requirement. I am one of your co-hosts, Kamala Shrao, and with I'm, me is... I'm Miracle Jones, and uh, we're here, uh, soul care and strategy in the time of Trump. Absolutely. Um, uh, we like to start every podcast with talking about how we are, um, and just how we're doing. So, Miracle Jones, how are you doing, man? Uh, right now, as of today, I am doing very well. I finished right. a lot of shit this okay. week. I just, like, didn't, I worked, like, nonstop. I entered a state of, like, total work. Uh, and I got a lot done. You so found that was fulfilling and, and... Yeah, I don't know if it was fulfilling, but it needed to happen. Okay. And now that I've, like, finished it all, I feel like I can do anything. Like, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I'm up and running up the steps in Philadelphia and punching the air. <laughs> so I'd say uh, this week has actually been a pretty slack week for me, and I feel pretty great about it. <laughs> there you go. We're, like, yeah. meeting in the middle. Right, exactly. exactly. Or we've taken on each other's worst habits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're wearing, like, a, a, like, hip, like message tea with like <laughs> monkeys playing jazz <laughs> monkeys playing jazz I'm, i've got like a button down shirt <laughs> <laughs> we switched places yeah, yeah, um, yeah my dad was actually here um this weekend and last week we were talking about financial anxiety and like the trade-offs you have to make when you grow up and i know no one in my life who has been racked more with financial anxiety than my father. And ah. so, like, it would have been really great to hear his voice. He's, it'll happen eventually. Yeah, it'll happen eventually. Uh, but, um, old man Rao. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's the nature of his financial anxiety? Um, so my dad grew up, like, dirt poor. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, really poor. Like, he was... Uh, I hadn't confirmed the story. So he went into his first job interview uh, without shoes and without pants. And so... Um, and this was in either Delhi or Mumbai so like a big city and uh, he he went and, sh- and he tried to wear shoes and because he had never worn shoes in his life they just cut his feet so he couldn't wear them so he went in barefoot <laughs> <laughs> what was the interview uh, I think with a bank or something like that I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, it was a bank or something I forget he worked uh, he worked a little while before he came to this country so um, he, he got the job apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he he grew up really dirt poor. Uh, so it was uh, um, my family is uh, his family is very large. Uh, they had, you know, maybe two or three acres of land to them. Like uh, just not a lot of anything really. He, uh, um, and he had to when he went to college. He was young when he went to college. He had to like actually take a boat he had to take a boat to like go through the backwaters it was like a day and a half it's like cajun shit (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah just a a really poor person and his his basic life was like um i don't want to go back to the farm and so he came to this he went to school he actually had to go somewhere else into the bigger city to go to college and then he went to um i think it was mumbai and delhi and and on so bigger cities in india to work and then he came to this country to study and to stay were your parents together when they came over? Or they no, no, no. They met yeah. here. My mom was actually also a student um, who also didn't want to go back to India, <laughs> uh, and she came uh, and she came separately. And you know, just up on down the eastern seaboard, there were very few Indians around that time, so they uh, they they decided to get married. So yeah, even when he kind of came to this country and he settled and he had a decent job, like. It's just the the anxiety ate him, and now that he's older, he's relatively. There's like a gun to your head, right? You you're thinking like they will send me exactly right back where I came <laughs> yeah, exactly. from. Exactly, he will go no. back to tending yeah. cows, yeah, exactly. tending cows and starving. <laughs> um, yeah, so he. Oh, I, I think the other indicator was I, I you know I wanted to check this out. So when my dad came to this country, he's 27 years old. 
Um, and uh, I believe so. He's my height. He's five seven. I think he weighed like ninety seven pounds. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> is that where is that where your body dysmorphia comes from? Is he telling you you're like pudgy? Is he like you? You're, oh, you're really porking up. <laughs> he does actually. Does he really? That's uh, right. he, he, he not a derogatory way, but he actually last time I saw him, I was wearing a suit, and he goes, oh. You, you need to get another suit. That doesn't fit you. Oh, and my God. Don't listen to your old man. <laughs> and I go, no, Dad, what I need to do is... I, what I need to do is lose some weight. And I was chuckling. And he goes, no, you need to set some realistic goals. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you guys do when you were here? Um, uh, so my dad, when he was here... So he's getting a little older, actually. Um, you know, he's 80. And so more or less, he um, we were visiting relatives who were celebrating their birthdays. They were 70 and 75. It was a... Uh, combined birthday um so he came and he visited he was here for a few days uh, i really like hanging out with my dad but he really doesn't do much anymore right yeah. like he's 80 so like i mean his big ambition was that he walked around the block he went and picked up the new york times came back to the apartment uh we went to uh a restaurant where he was happy to take the subway so like that was a big thing we didn't call a car uh we went to the temple of course because it's the temple my dad is religious and uh my wife and I, we love the food in the canteen, which is really good. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's that. Um, uh, and that was it. Um, so uh, I guess on one hand, I wanted to talk a little, like, like my dad is a great proxy when I think about like financial insecurity. Um, uh, but uh, personally, like uh, this weekend was, um, it was interesting uh, because, you know, my dad is getting older and my dad was such a bedrock in my life. Like he's really fundamental, he's a foundational person. Um, and I, I really admire him, and I, and I do love him dearly, but I was trying to tell someone this, and I was, I was trying to tell him my reaction to the weekend, and I was trying not to use the word sad about him aging, and the truth is I am. I mm -hmm. think that's it's hard to see a man that was so vital and uh, uh, important to me now kind of not be, like, I go to the role of support, whereas he was really, like, a, a bedrock in my life, so... Uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm still trying to think about that. Uh, I don't have a great feel for what that really means for me, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's just uh, all is all is like bedrocks and you now, you know. So it's yeah, like, that's like you know, it's still uh, still around. Like he uh, he passed it on. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I think yeah, it, it's just something that uh, I haven't quite processed, but it is something that I think about. So yeah. Well, so you guys, he's a huge CNN fan. He is a uh, huge CNN fan. I do get, like, my interest in politics from him, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I get a lot of my interest from him. But, yeah, he's a huge CNN fan. Um, he loves to read the New York Times. Basically, all he does is read the New York Times and The Economist now. So, so he's just a fucking liberal. Just a liberal <laughs> elite. My dad is, yeah, so my dad is um, both, like, the epitome of, yeah, my dad is both, like, the uh, the epitome of, like, pull yourself up from your own bootstraps. He really is a self-made man, uh, 100%, and at the same time, just a leftist guy. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah, he's yeah, just, yeah. and he's just, and he's getting probably a little bit more leftist every day. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. And it's just, you know, uh, he actually comes from a state uh, in India, Kerala. It actually was, uh, it's communist. It has a communist government, and it's a popularly elected communist government, so it's, it was rare. It was like one of the f first popularly elected uh, communist governments, uh, the state is ruled, uh, well, the state isn't always ruled by the Communist Party, but the Communist Party and several other parties trade uh, leadership in the state. So it's like the California of India. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It has, like, a lovely beach, too, and everything, yeah. It's really lush. Um, 
really poor, uh, <laughs> uh, well-educated, uh, high suicide rate, <laughs> no jobs. <laughs> um, yeah. So. What's the What's the religious demographic there? Uh, well, uh, Kerala, where my dad is from, is uh, profoundly mixed. Actually, yeah. it's a really tolerant uh, part of the country, in particular. So my dad grew up in a very very small village, like five hundred people, and I think there were. Uh, certainly Christians within the in that village, so very small village. They all um, uh, lived harmoniously. There were in the bigger cities there were Jews, so there were still Indian Jews uh, before they all left. Um, there's still a street called Jew Street, um, which, classic. Which I have pictures of me on Jew Street, um, and it still has a synagogue, and it's like the synagogue is like 1,500 years old, never faced a pogrom, like. It's um, so it's a famously tolerant part of uh, of India. Um, my dad knew uh, Jews, Catholics, Muslims, all sects of Hindus uh, growing up. So uh, and they all there was never any like intercommunal strife, as far as I know. Um, uh, the famous story actually is that at some point there was a priest walking down the um, uh, street, and my father didn't get out of the way, or he didn't show respect to him. So my grandfather took him home and beat him. <laughs> <laughs> so, and because my father wasn't showing respect enough to sure. a holy man, yeah. also because my grandfather was just an asshole it's and like crazy. To beat yeah, son. it's an like excuse. <laughs> just like to beat members of his family. Oh my god! So uh, both liberal and an asshole. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, my grandfather. Um, but man, I, I've been talking a lot about myself. So what about you, man? How the week's been going? All right. Yeah. Uh, any yeah. personal revelations or? No, I, I've been avoiding reconciliation with an old friend about a stupid argument. But, uh, yeah, it's a stupid argument, and I have to, like, fix that. I've kind of come to the realization that me wanting to argue everything is just me kind of being a bully. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's really important to argue. I really do. I think it's an important skill. But me not willing to let things go, I think, was me more of a, trying to be a bully to it. Well, there's a sense in which, like, argument or discourse or disputation is a way in which people can f finally ground a subject in order to get to consensus or learn new things or see all the sides of it, right? You just can't hold everything in your brain, right? You need yeah. that, like, conflict yeah. in order to get at yeah. where everybody's coming from, right? And I, for to that end, I find argument to be polite. Like, it's a good, it's a good way yeah. to... Yeah, so I'm still ambivalent about my new my attitude towards arguments. <laughs> you still, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, we're here, right? Uh, I, yeah. And again, I think, yeah, uh, argument is good. One of the things I've realized, though, in social groups, um, the thing, I don't let go of arguments if I really respect the person. Like, And that's the thing. Like, yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah. I don't let them go. And it can often seem, and whereas I'll let, like, if I'm not like, okay, well, I don't want to argue with you, it's because I'm, I'm just not, like, it, it's not worth my time. Yeah, whereas the people I really respect, I'm like, no, I want you to keep going down this line. Prove yeah, to me that yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. And in like dinner party talk, I'm like, uh, maybe this isn't the right thing. But I do when I find someone that I'm like, okay, I respect you enough to like, I want you to hash this out with me. I wish it was just like, okay, let's just throw down and argue this. Yeah, and I think sometimes that's seen as impolite. Yeah, or maybe all the time. Uh, <laughs> and I, I want to go back to this topic of uh, financial instability because yeah. we brought it up. And have you? kind of made any inroads do you feel more stable or is it just kind of being put into the background or a little bit yeah i mean i don't have any debt how's that yeah. like i feel pretty you yeah. know as far as people my age and people i know like a, a lot of people are in debt for various things yeah i'm i'm 
never really been in debt, which is is good. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't make a lot of money. I've got a great short game. I'd like to make more money and, like, have a better quality of life, I guess, but I don't feel scared about anything. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people do in um, the world and America. And, yeah. And so I try to, you know, be grateful about that for sure. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, like, then sure. in, New, in New York, you look around and every, I feel... Definitely, I am like the lower lowest tier in, in New York City. I mean, we live in Jackson Heights because yeah. we didn't make it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but I, I wanted to bring back uh, my dad because you know, there's someone who even financial insecurity is very much like a state of mind as well. Like, I think there are definitely people who grew up with him who were as bad. I don't know if people were significantly worse than my father, but who were pretty bad off. But they just had a different attitude. Um, and I think also with my father, as he's gotten more materially. Um, stable, the anxiety still eats him. Like he's still worried about the future in a way that um, he and now he has nothing to press against. Like yeah, it's like you're an idiot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm successful. Your son, it's gonna be okay. Like, <laughs> but yeah, I remember I was an English major and a philosophy major. But I went to so, I went so, to the English major graduation. Okay, uh, you had to pick one. You couldn't go to both. Uh, it was interesting at the. I remember the speech very vividly because uh, it was a good speech. I don't remember who gave it, but. At the graduation, uh, her the point she made was, right, you guys are English majors, right? You're mm-hmm. you're kind of doomed. Yeah. You're uh, you're you're gonna be working in coffee shops and like support staff and offices and you know. Which you've all checked off the box. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but of course, and but just like, but the comparative advantage you have is, you will, uh, as an English major, you will. Uh, attempt to find the beauty and good in any job that you have because what's the difference you know like it's no hierarchies we're all characters like yeah. there's no interesting you know and uh and you will bring your the story to everything and tell the story of it later right yeah you and, do you, t- you tell a lot of stories about work yeah and so you know there's something there uh-huh. like you can see and so i've always kind of taken that to heart right yeah. like maybe you maybe financial security isn't in your future but <laughs> there's there's wealth in, in many you different you can always ways. marry <laughs> yeah that's uh, anything else I do want to ask you about something. Did you see the uh, Anthony Bourdain episode on Jackson Heights? I, I did think. not, but Angela, my wife, has... Yeah, I mean, I think he, he went to a bunch of interesting places, but certainly Queens is full of far, far more interesting Oh, yeah, places. no, it's just he barely scratches the surface. Yeah. But it is, it's really interesting, the episode, not necessarily for the food part, which mm-hmm. is like, you know... I mean, hey, we live here. It's yeah, yeah, we live in Queens. But the, uh, but just the the analysis of Queens is interesting. Like, oh, he yeah, talks it... about you know just like the oh yeah, I didn't Queens see that part uh... of uh, and how it differs from the rest of New York and how it differs and how important it is right. to, I guess, the future of any discussions about America, globalism, immigration. And... Right. I mean, we talked about we've talked about this I think since mm-hmm. episode one. But yeah. yeah, I mean, Queens and in particular our neighborhood is. A real indictment of the general attitude of the administration yeah. or the hardcore anti-immigrant i don't know ethos that yeah. has beset our country it is such a stunning indictment we are poor uh it, our, our neighborhood right here is muslim um and latino, gay. Uh, muslim, <laughs> gay, gay, gay muslim latino, latino. <laughs> like all of these uh really diverse um groups of people come together and are completely peaceful yeah. and like and, really and get along economically enmeshed right, right. yeah and yeah. are doing exactly what any conservative would want to do which is strive yeah. and like working really hard and trying to just live a middle class life like yeah. that is the aspiration here um 
like, <laughs> like if America, like you said before, like if America starts to look more like Jackson Heights, America, I think, would be better off for it. I mean, yeah. it would, and it wouldn't even be that liberal. Like, no, it, it really be, wouldn't. You know, is there a place for Vermont and Jackson Heights? <laughs> know, right? As a Texan, I feel okay here. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know. Right, right, right. If they're not, if they're not praising and at the same time avoiding multiculturalism, what's going to happen <laughs> yeah, to the Vermonters? Yeah, um, yeah I just want to go back. I mean. Uh, it's it's Ramadan, all right. Like this, yeah. like, like last weekend was Ramadan, and the streets were just packed. At least that main drag in Seventy Fourth Street, and it's just, it is just people going around their business, just being normal human beings. I don't at the idea that this is somehow. Uh, I, I try not to eat on the street during right. the day. Yeah, uh, and that's my like one concession. I feel kind of <laughs> shitty about it. So I guess like Sharia law is working. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah. Uh, just it is it's just this amazing kind of jigsaw puzzle of humanity and it has and it is not any more violent in fact it's far more safe than other parts of uh, the world and new york city and america um and we get along and rub shoulders if not perfectly pretty well yeah at least with interest and curiosity yeah. and a sense of you know respect um well, should we get into politics? Yeah, let's talk about politics. Uh, I think we want to use this podcast to focus pretty much on international politics. There's so much to talk about, and it's a topic we both like. Yeah. Um, there are a number of pieces of news. Uh, I think mainly Donald Trump's trip abroad, where he went to the Middle East, and he also uh, stopped by to uh, maybe ruffle a few feathers at NATO as well as we, uh, I guess, we have finally announced that we are removing ourselves from the the Paris Climate Accord. Mm -hmm. um, so, which topic would you like to talk about first? Uh, let's talk about the Paris Accords first. Sure. Um, so, what's your initial reaction to this? Uh, I'm going to admit something horrible. I don't care too much, but I know that I should. <laughs> I just have a hard time caring about environmental policy. Uh, I have a real blind spot about it. I just have a hard time caring. And oh my god, I, I kind of feel the same. <laughs> and I know I'm terrible. wrong. I know I'm wrong. Um, uh, but so I'm, I'm also not good at. Uh, I'm just not good at any like large scale like shame based feelings. I just and that's an environment. The environment. What you grow a cat? <laughs> that's exactly why. <laughs> any anytime somebody tells me I'm going to hell, it's like yeah, I, I definitely know. <laughs> and like. Is, is climate change real? Yes, obviously. Is it man-made? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, no question. I, is there stuff we can do about it? Sure. I'm like, absolutely. Right. So, I'll, um, so. so I think it's... I don't want to be dismissive of this, yeah. right? So the, but there, it's important to keep, I think, certain things in perspective. And one of the things that happened when Donald Trump withdrew us from the uh, Paris Agreement is that the left went apeshit. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, I think, is the wrong reaction. One, you should have seen this coming. Two, I'm not sure what it really means for American environmental policy. Mm -hmm. So that's the more subtle thing. I think there's a uh, there's a third question or there's a third part, which is actually a better argument. Counter argument is that what it means for American leadership in the world. But um, in terms of I think environmental policy, America's private sector has done a really good job of starting to push towards renewables in a way that we've actually started to pull back. We've actually, our carbon output or our carbon emissions have actually started to drop over the past few years and maybe even actually a little bit longer, maybe even 10 years. So uh, we are moving towards um, things like solar power, towards wind power in places like Texas 
And so the private markets really want or have really pushed for this kind of um, at least uh, low carbon emissions future. So Yeah, like what most of Trump does, it's a meaningless dick move yeah. with like serious uh, s- strategic geopolitical consequences, but I'm not sure how like the practical consequences on a policy level will matter all that much, like yeah. you're saying. Uh, so yeah, the term they've been floating around is placebo politics. Yeah. Like they're... He's doing nothing, but it's making people happy, yeah, and yeah, yeah. it's making his base happy. Yeah, he needed to do something cruel because he wasn't being able to get anything done right. on a policy level that was cruel. So this is a way to like really drive the, the knife in. Again, stirring up his base and pissing off the left is the same thing. So mm-hmm. like by reacting this way, I think it's it's a hard thing not to react. But I also yeah. think that American policy is is moving, is taking pretty big strides towards. Uh, reduce carbon emissions. Um, yeah. I think there are some other arguments about how we are our environmental policy, especially under the new administration, may be a little wayward. But I also want to point out that Obama was never able to push through um, the Paris Agreement through the Senate, and unless and so that way, the, his legacy, his environmental legacy, was always up for debate and it could always be erased, and it effectively is starting to be erased. Um, that's a fault i think uh, you can blame it certainly on the republicans but i also think that obama was the last person to be able to negotiate with republicans at that time so it's great if china india and europe take the lead on environmental policy for the world it should absolutely be china and india they are their emissions have spiked Mm -hmm. in the past 10 or 15 years they are the ones who really have to think about investing in technology they should be at the forefront of this debate i'll also point out that the paris agreement is a set of voluntary agreements like mm. like no one, we weren't going to follow those anyway right and and no <laughs> yeah. one and, and as soon as any country gets any pushback internally they will start to fudge the requirements there was okay. no real oversight there was no real penalty um there was uh there was an investment plan that i think richer countries were going to give some amount of money to poorer countries to invest in environmentally friendly technologies um, that would have never gotten through the Congress. Um, and so I think that's, uh, or it would have been very hard. Um, so a lot of this is the type of international politics I particularly hate, which is like do-gooding uh, uh, policy that says all the right things and is in no way enforceable. Yeah. Uh, this is what the UN specializes in. It's, <laughs> and it's, um, and it's, I don't know if it's worth getting upset about. I think it says other things about where the U.S. wants to be in the world but in terms of immediate environmental policy, I don't think the impact is that big. And I think maybe we should take a step back and take a breather on this one. Yeah. Um, I, I, if this is the thing that makes you hate Donald Trump and his administration, great. If this is what finally does it for you, if, like, I guess I'm for that. If, it, like, if you needed this to sure. be the thing that... Sure. Right. <laughs> but it's, it, it definitely is all of a piece and people we should be zero percent surprised yeah and, you know, it, i guess it would be more alarming if we were to leave the un or nato yeah or nafta i think this is just going to become a thing that republicans do from now on in right. the same way that they like defund earmarked abortion funds yeah. overseas they're just always going to back out of whatever like climate change treaty that democrats negotiate when it's their turn yeah know? absolutely but, and this is a republican policy that has yeah. changed over time because effectively uh, the uh, the Paris Agreement looks a lot like what the Republicans were proposing in sort of the early Bush years, sure. early Bush the, the second years. 
Um, so it's much more about the shifting goalposts of what Republican environmental policy looks like, which is effectively opposition, right? The more, the more, yeah. And the more interesting thing is, I want to see who follows us. Yeah. If anybody, but if not, we just isolated ourselves for no reason, stupidly gaining nothing, and yeah. nothing will change. Yeah. I mean, it would have been smart if if we had tried to wrangle some concessions from our great deal maker president, mm-hmm. saying like, well, we're thinking about leaving. What kind of incentives yeah. can we can we work our way yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that would have been really important. Right. But just leaving is dumb um, without getting some concessions in the yeah. process, right? This yeah, is yeah, yeah. this is like <laughs> environmental Brexit. I mean, you're leaving. <laughs> yeah. you, you're not necessarily going to guarantee anything. Like, you should have yeah. negotiated better. If um, we could have taken the three largest armies with us or something, that would have made sense. <laughs> like Turkey, Russia, and yeah. China, you know, and America all leave the, the, the Paris Accords, right? Mm-hmm. That would have been something. That would have been interesting. But if we just, it seems like they, they've all firmly continued their commitment, so I don't know what right. the point and, of this is. And part of the whole... And the result, I think, the third issue is that and instead of helping guide this kind of talking shop of environmental policy, America has withdrawn. And it'll, for, and it'll be really hard when it tries to... If, should it try to re-enter? Because now people, uh, countries like China or Germany or I guess maybe even Russia, uh, will have more sway, and they'll be an unreliable or unreliable partner. So effectively, um, we won't be able to guide even the talking shop part of the policy. We didn't really gain anything. Um, it doesn't save us a lot of money because we Congress would have never appropriated the funds. Um, but it does gin up the base, I guess. The right temporarily, really, yeah, yeah, temporarily. The right really liked it, but yeah. again, uh, nothing. Um, since we've already been talking about it, I yeah. want to go over and uh, and switch. Uh, gears a little and just talk about Donald Trump at NATO, which right. I think is like more of the same, but I think mm-hmm. it's a, it's a much more pronounced kind of uh, shift. I think in terms of how Donald Trump performed at NATO, he seemed to have irked in some ways the Chancellor of Germany. Um, I think he didn't in any way affirm Article Five. His dad never beat him up for uh, insufficiently showing respect to the police. I know, <laughs> right? All right, All right, exactly. See, kids should be more. Um, my father is a very tolerant man because of it. Um, I, I, so I guess the real question is: Are we with, are are we actually withdrawing from NATO? So like, there's a diplomatic blunder for sure, and there are mm. a number of diplomatic blunders with Donald Trump enacting with anyone who isn't an autocrat right like I mean, yeah i'm not enacting just act just donald trump in a room full of non-autocrats is always going to be uh, a shitty process of diplomatic missteps and yeah yeah well the 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 to me the strategic operation right now is russia attempting to divide germany from the united states sphere yeah. And us trying to divide Turkey from Russia's sphere, yeah. right? And we've totally failed. We've, we've lost. Failed. Yeah. Russia has absolutely succeeded. Yeah. Um, so I. So rather than I think there was a lot of, uh, a lot of just noise, um, both in tw- Twitter sphere, but also just in general news coverage around. Okay, Donald Trump didn't do this. He didn't affirm his commitment to the Paris Accords, which uh, he, for very obvious reasons. Um, uh, he didn't affirm Article 5, which says that attack on one is an attack on all, so it's a guaranteed mutual defense. Uh, and he basically harangued uh, our member partners in NATO for not spending enough. Um, which I oh. think is hilarious. They should just call us bluff, and, and everybody should raise their defense spending and spend it all on cybersecurity and yeah. like information warfare. Right. 
you know, protecting liberal democratic elections right. from, from uh, interference by uh, autocratic states. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I, the, the whole point, I think, here is that Russia has won, right? Mm-hmm. Russia, this is, in their wildest dreams, they would never have thought that you would have Germany and the U.S. sniping at each other and, in the process, weakening NATO. This is a huge goal. It's specifically the dream of Putin, the yeah. uh, East German yes. KGB operative. Right, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to go back and say, look, there's a lot of talk, and there's even more uh, news coming out about the various either collusions or uh, awkward arrangements with the Trump administration and Russia leading up to the election, just immediately after the election. And one of the defenses is, look, Trump has done nothing to signal that he has, now that he's in power, he's done nothing to help out the Russian government. And this is actually, he has actually delivered to the Russian government probably their number one goal in the foreign policy sphere. Mm-hmm. And so, absolutely, like, it does, you know, all this small talk about collusion, it, I think Russia really won. I mean, there's nothing, and I'm surprised not enough people point this out. So it now just comes down to the question of, like, how smart is Angela Merkel how yeah. savvy is she as far as American electoral politics how much can she help us yeah, yeah. what can she do about it is there anything not a lot yeah. right I mean yeah, it's yeah. and what is are they able to swallow their pride in order to see that sniping at America it, hugging Trump would be better than uh, right. divesting themselves of him again this is true in the US but it's true everywhere else right when people, when domestic leaders talk about foreign politics, it's mainly because they're talking to their domestic audience. Mm-hmm. It's like seventy-five percent. So, when Angela Merkel is talking, and I uh, is talking about how Europe has to go it alone, she's talking about trying to build. Uh, she's trying to get her own people excited about reinvesting in the relationship within Europe. Yeah. Right? They have a new dynamic leader in France. They are really trying to build that coalition, um, and it plays well to uh, Europe, that where Donald Trump is is box office poison he's mm-hmm. just toxic and so there no one's going to make great inroads uh by praising donald trump right now he's made that clear and again this is this is almost checkmate for russia right this is someone they have um, they have divided europe and america so i don't know what else they could have gotten out of this this relationship that would have counted as a greater success um so good job russia yeah, you basically maneuvered this tool um, to doing you know, your bidding in one way or another. Um, oh, and it also brings up the fact that uh, now there was a couple of news stories that actually Trump actually did move to remove sanctions early on in his administration. That was very alarming because I was kind of pleasantly surprised that that didn't happen. Yeah, and, and it was now just because just they, like they, they were, they were just too shitty at doing it. Again, there is no reason to believe that Trump is anything other than a useful puppet from the Russians. Yeah, so now if, as a result of the Paris Accords, there's a worldwide call to place sanctions on America, then we can trade those sanctions for the Russian sanctions. And then, <laughs> you know, it's a great, it's a great uh, little uh, move. If, as far as Russia's involvement in America goes, we should get out there as, on the left as early as possible, calling on you know relatives abroad and business partners and you know to the uh, 
other liberal democratic countries to get involved in our electoral politics <laughs> early and often uh, uh, to just turn the American, you know, democratic system into a big, like, lucrative Eurovision song contest. Everybody gets involved in hacking and, like, yeah. let's, all, let's just turn our country into, like, yeah, battle royale for, you know... Like, apparently, like, as long as the Republicans get what they want, yeah. the country's for sale. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So why not, shit, like, yeah. just say there's way more people in China and India than there yeah. are in Russia, you know? Yeah. You know, speaking of uh, foreign policy, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Middle East, which is someplace we mm. haven't talked about. Nice, complicated subject. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, you know... Donald Trump started his trip abroad, one of his very few, I assume, uh, in the Middle East, uh, you know, hobnobbing with the Saudis and other, sure. uh, uh, you know, other dictators from the Gulf. Um, you have any thoughts about kind of Middle East policy or, uh, in general, the Middle East? You know, it's one play is going all in with the Saudis, you know, that's definitely a play. And, you know, I, I thought the play of trying to move Iran into kind of I, I think Iran's probably a more ethical country in some ways Saudi Arabia <laughs> yeah well I think the the fiction that kept coming up that I thought was really appalling was the fact that for some reason the talking line is is that Iran is the number one sponsor of terrorism mm. in the in the region Absolutely <laughs> now let's all go fight ISIS right yeah, <laughs> ISIS is not aligned with Iran. Yeah. ISIS considers the theology, the philosophy of Iran to be apostasy. Yeah. ISIS is an offshoot of Al Qaeda. It's 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 accurate to say terrorism is the number one political weapon of the Middle East. Yes, absolutely right, and everyone yeah, uses it. Yeah, everyone <laughs> uses it yeah. um, to say that Iran is somehow a. A less or uh, or a lesser evil or a, a greater evil than Saudi Arabia, which has for years sponsored a particularly violent um, interpretation of of Sunni theology, it has really been there to sponsor a lot of the groundswell of the kind of uh, philosophic or theological thinking that you uh, that tends to back terrorism. I don't know. It's just—it's it, mind-boggling that this is this isn't brought up. Saudi Arabia is a sponsor of terrorism. I don't think you can get away with that. Like, um, I think the way that Iran is operating—I'm not sure if that's completely just. Like, I wouldn't say the Saudi Arabian government is as involved in state-sponsored terrorism as the Iranian government is. I would say that the Saudi Arabian culture and religion is far more virulent as far as creating radical Muslims than Shiite yeah. culture and, and religion. Yeah. So you've got these two... Uh, you've got uh, a government in Saudi that's cracking that, trying to crack down on its own like culture problem right. by but, being right. extremely I, hostile and anti-democratic and sure. fucked up as far as the way... I want to I want to come back and say that yeah. okay, even if the it's not quote-unquote state-sponsored yeah. terrorism, uh, it is... Uh, almost clear that a lot of, because the uh, the sponsorship is coming from somewhere within the there are plenty of parts of the Saudi family itself like it may not be official mm -hmm. policy yeah. but certainly there are rich uncles and oh cousins. no yeah culture problems yeah right? yeah cultural yeah. problems yeah. there are a lot of very conservative people who are uh, certainly have the funding and yeah. access to funds who are close to the Saudi um, royal monarchy or in, in parts of it that continue to sponsor uh, some of the uglier forms of So it's a question of what kind of terrorism do you prefer? Yeah. Do you like random 
ideologically driven big acts of like horrible terror like ISIS like 9-11 or do you want revolutionary guard sponsored boots on the strategic, ground strategic yeah. yeah taking over territory from Syria yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and parts of I guess Iraq Hezbollah not, right. yeah 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 anti-Israel terror yeah. so that's it's a question like which one do you want like if we were smarter we would play them a uh, we would play them against each other, mm-hmm. but we're not that smart. American foreign policy is not that smart. You would. Pretend... You don't see a lot of terrorist attacks in Iran or Saudi Arabia. <laughs> there are a few. Actually. There's a few, but yeah. they mostly use um, proxy countries as their, you know, more more Turkey, more yeah. more Syria. And I, I am not a fan of uh, Barack Obama's foreign policy. I've, I've been on the record about this, but I also think that one of the smarter things he did was try to bring Iran into the fold. Um, I think he may have bent over backwards. I think certain parts of the current administration are right that we gave Iran maybe a little bit too much. Well, it's but easier to turn the spigot off of state-sponsored yeah. terrorism than it is culturally driven, ideologically. Yeah. You know, you can... Yeah. It, it's, that's interesting. It's yeah. like, okay, well, maybe if we do a, a deal with the Persians, this will stop instantly and then we can all encircle Saudi yeah. Arabia and try to put an end to some of this like clerical terrorism. A smarter Middle Eastern policy involves having Iran not shut out, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not, with that. not created or not built up as being the number one bad guy in the air in, yeah. in the region. Um, our current policy seems to be doubling down on the Gulf monarchy and siding with Israel. Um, I mean, a smarter Middle East policy involves clean energy so that the country is yeah. back to being starved for resources and is no longer rich enough to sponsor state. Yeah, I, and for this reason, actually, one of my cynicisms about uh, climate change or uh, one of my real hopes, <coughs> I think, for climate change is actually America becomes the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. Uh-huh, yeah. right through. And I actually think of um, fracking as a really that important was, thing. You're such a Clintonite. What a yeah. fucking liberal elite. I, I see fracking as actually a positive development. I know that mm-hmm. makes it's, me... It's better. It's then, better. Like yeah. it's. A, I mean, if you want to go through to towards a clean energy future, I think it's an important halfway step. Yeah. Or it's a step that way. We could tax it. Um, yeah. We could tax it. We could export it. We would uh, undercut a lot of the uh, a lot of the um, corrupt governments of the Middle East and maybe even uh, maybe even some parts of Africa as well as other parts of the world, uh, including Russia. Um, and an interesting thing I think is that uh, if you look at what happened in Germany, actually. Germany made a push for renewables in a a real way. And it's actually, it's been problematic. It's been really hard because renewables, it's hard to get a constant flow of energy. Um, So we still haven't worked out transportation, grid sharing, and storage of energy in a way that makes renewables a viable future. In fact, when uh, Germany really doubled down on its push towards renewables, it actually ended up consuming more coal. So uh, it's so it ended up. I, I think carbon emissions n- may not have even declined over the past couple of years, even though they were really they they dramatically increased their use of renewables. But to fill in the gaps, they had to increase their use of coal. Um, so uh, right now, a renewable future is still many steps away, and I think natural gas is an interesting and viable, um, important uh, step. Um, and it, I think geopolitically it would have real ramifications. It would actually be a huge stake in our, the heart of our enemies. And let's not let's not forget, like, 
every aircraft carrier that is built is like far more damaging to the environment than you know many countries right like clean energy military contractor right that is like the best thing you could be if you're like a science driven like practical person right like oh you're saying in terms of operations yeah yeah Yeah. yeah, oh i thought you were making another point for a while i know that i was reading reports for the past 10 years about how the pentagon is trying to move Mm -hmm. towards uh energy independence they can't run things off of oil anymore we sell so many arms we sell these things to people we can build them and they have no choice but to buy it it's like oh you want like a new you know uh tank fleet where you're gonna have to use these clean energy tanks yeah i think that's uh, it's really important i think the um we haven't figured out a way but i think the pentagon is really aware of this Mm -hmm. they they consider climate change one of the real issues that should be uh, a huge part of center-left policy, making sure that military contracts we award have a clean energy focus or some sort of like... Yeah, I think uh, I think we're a little a few steps away from that, but I think yeah. uh, a stronger push towards, uh, I would call it uh, energy independence. Yeah. Yeah, it would be clean energy but another name. But like energy independence, we can't be reliable, I mean, we can't be reliant on Saudi oil for, yeah, yeah. to fuel our tanks and... but. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, we're talking about the Middle East, and we've never really talked about uh, Israel, but I think Israel is like a really complicated subject. And one of the things, again, I think about foreign policy is the details really matter. And I think part of coming from the left is that you have this sort of sense that you know what you're talking about because we come from like a morally enlightened part of the world or a morally impl- uh, enlightened side of the country. Um, but I think international relations is messy it's really hard to divide things neatly between left and right and the details really matter so what do you think about israel what do you do you have any thoughts or it's a really big topic yeah and therefore you should be i'll give you 30 seconds (laughs) i don't have strong opinions one way or the other i think they make a lot of poor decisions but i also am pro-israel so what does that mean like I feel that I, I think they should exist. I think they have a right to exist. I think they've been fucked over a lot in the region. Can I you be pro Jew and not pro Israel? Yeah, I think and, you can. And not pro Israel. You can be you can be anti Likud, which I definitely am. Like I, I think Netanyahu yeah, the, the is ruling a, a party crap of Israel leader. And yeah, think, I've I've hated Netanyahu for years. Yeah, um, yeah I I I want to say that like I love like Jewish culture. I, I love the tradition. <laughs> But I'm just not in love with Israel. I don't know how to square that. <laughs> I might like Israel a little more than you. I think yeah. they're like, I, I, you know, they're as far as their social policies go. I think they're great. Li- they're a democracy. Yeah. Uh, they were at some point before yeah. Netanyahu took over a liberal democracy. Yeah. If you're gay in the Middle East, where are you going to go? Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. You know, I mean, that's that's ten percent of people. Yeah. And that's who's going to defend you? Who's got your rights? Nobody. There's it's one right. country. It's very tiny. And yeah. It's bombarded on all sides, right? So I can't help but think like. And well, since 1967, we know God is on their side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, like they fucking do a lot of fucked up shit and get well, away with it. Yeah, and I just think that they they have an outsized ability to influence world opinion uh, based upon the amount of how successful, wealthy, and plugged in they are. Yeah, and I think what's sad, and I would love to say this situation is not sustainable, is how Israel uh, took over a lot of territory. It is occupied by Palestinians. They have, uh, and they have never made, and this is not my formulation, but Israel has never decided which two of the three that they want. Can, do they want historic lands 
do they want to be a democracy and do they want to be a Jewish state? You know what I would do if I were if I were autocrat of America? I would offer Israel statehood and then if they'd turn it down, cut their military budget in half. But they are a state. Of America. Oh. 51st state. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, you might as well make it explicit, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Like some oversight and control, you know. We yeah, get, we get I mean, Mossad, they get... I just, I, I, want to, <laughs> I want to defend Israel in the sense that, like, it would be great to give Palestinians full citizenship, but you are talking about, right now, whatever passes for political leadership uh, on the Palestinian side are organizations like Hamas. Their charter is devoted towards the extinction of Israel. There's no way, I mean, I understand, to me, like, I want I want a two state solution. I want full citizenship and Palestine to be uh, a full functioning democracy. But I don't know how to sign that charter if you're going to just turn around and start going to trying to run the Jews into the sea. Yeah, I, I, it's it's a really hard intractable problem. The the lens through which all Ameri- uh, Americans see politics, left and right, just fails miserably. <laughs> uh, it's the Middle East, Jack. I don't know. Yeah. Um, all right, next section, doubling down on defeat, where the Democrats ensure that Donald Trump has a presidency for life. <laughs> so this might go quickly, but uh, <laughs> I, you wanted to talk about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to talk about Hillary Clinton. Um, so uh, Hillary Clinton has been making the rounds, effectively talking about her presidency or her failed presidency. It's a question. Has Hillary Clinton been making the rounds, or have the rounds been making Hillary Clinton? That's true. Uh, so she, uh, Hillary Clinton has been making the rounds. Um, or at least given one or two major interviews uh, where she slams um, both the DNC and um, other aspects of the Democratic coalition as well as sort of puts away the blame from her. I think there are a number of people who have, on the right who have been like, this is ludicrous. I actually kind of agree with them. I think she's angling for a Secretary of State position. Hmm. <laughs> In the Trump administration? Yeah, because yeah. yeah, Tillerson's gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> uh, uh, probably not. Probably no, not. No. Um, I don't know. What do you think, man? I don't know. I I don't. I mean, I like Hillary Clinton. I'm always interested in what she has to say, but I understand people don't. I think it's underestimated how many people like her. Yeah, I think that's it's easy to be. So one of the things is again. I mean, I I like Hillary Clinton. I voted for her. I feel like everything over the past several months has proven that Hillary Clinton was an order of magnitude better than Donald Trump. Which isn't to say that she doesn't have character flaws. Um, I think the fact that she lost allows everyone to say that she's an absolute failure, even though she came very close to winning. Right? I, I like Hillary Clinton actually more as a public intellectual than as a political candidate. She mm. can speak her mind, and it's interesting. I'm always sort of curious what she has. Maybe to say. I, I think she's I, I think she's a very flawed public persona, and this is I think is right. I think she doesn't know how to connect. I think she's also. She doesn't have a, a real knack for political presentation. It can alienate a lot of people. It can cer- and she's not good at sort of bringing people to her side. She's, she doesn't have that kind of charisma. I think there are people who are really loyal to her. I think that's why the Democratic Party uh, offered her you know, a chance at the crown. Um, but I don't, think, I don't think she's great in front of the people. I, and that's just how it goes. She comes off as stiff, a little preachy, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, yeah, for sure, like, no one's, no one's perfect, I, I just, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't understand that, and the, I guess the, the hope is that she goes away, how does, how does that work, like, how do we make some, how do we disappear somebody in a democratic society? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think I would just hope that Hillary Clinton learns to, uh, learns that this has been a bad week, 
in terms yeah. of inter-party fighting. There's no reason we should be doing this. And that she is uh, learns to do effectively what she should do, which is say, hey, I lost, make a couple of jokes, and say, okay, well, we need to build unity. I am really looking forward to the She next needs show. something to do, but that's not on her. Yeah. That's on the world to find a place for that works. And the left, you know, we need to find something, some way that was yeah, just... I thought Columbia is just to <laughs> employ, like, failed Democrats. <laughs> yeah, true. Isn't that maybe the school of journalism? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Al Gore I mean, there Yeah, for no, you're absolutely right, yeah. <laughs> Come on, Columbia. Come on, alma mater. Hi, Thank you for a job in this at a uh, school of international and public affairs. <laughs> Get her an MSNBC show. Yeah. God, you know, um, Fox News, Megan Kelly's. <laughs> right. <off>. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there would be nothing better for Fox News than, than to have Hillary Clinton on every day with her own show. show right? <laughs> nothing would chin up the Republicans more. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I just think that it it would be nice for her to go towards being a, a party builder, and yeah. I think it's also. Um, the Republicans point this out, and certain conservative columnists I like. Have, one of the flaws, I think, of Hillary Clinton is a real need to be in the public. And I think that's maybe what she should learn is that she needs to really reassess how she interacts with the public or how she takes on a, a public persona. Cause, and at the same time, I think there's a real want and need to be out in the public eye. Maybe. I might disagree with you. I might think it's a, it's a test for how America deals with what she's bringing, like that kind of person, mm. and it's a it's a it's a test of our entire democratic system. Can we listen to a woman, right? A yeah. who is essentially the same as John Kasich? You know, I, I have a fondness for anti-charismatic people. Like I I I I, yeah, I, I like I like what they have to say more because it, it, I mean I, no no yeah. she's very bright. I also yeah. think she's very polished. So whatever she says, still isn't in fact often very insightful because she's often she has a very like a very polished sense of like what she should be saying but mm -hmm. I think in the end she's not a great communicator she's not able to talk about it in simple issues that win people over and so that's that's a hard uh, that's a hard space um, uh, you may rewrite that I mean I think there's a gender issue for sure but I also think that there is a real charisma deficit it's a, it's a hard question but the way that we've kind of got ourselves into this game of politics like the the sports of it yeah that feels a little bit new and she's still a person you know like i mean it's interesting I, I just don't know if there's an audience if people want to do an interview with her i don't think she should be turning it down if she has something to say i think she should be able to say it i'm more worried about nature of us destroying political you know like in a democratic society getting rid of somebody who has a political base you know right i, I think I, it's yeah, I mean, it, out of like, right again, hostility. it's much more about coalition building yeah. than it is about silencing her. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's how to find, you know, we, we, first of all, I think it's on the left of respecting the fact that she does have a legitimate coalition of people that yeah. love her and will do anything for her. Right? Yeah, and it's not trivial. It's the biggest coalition. Right? right. It is the. It's not the loudest. Yeah. It's not the you know the youngest or the most proficient in social media. But it is the biggest, yeah. And the extent to which they are not the loudest or most proficient is something we need to interrogate, right? Because we've silenced them, right? Yeah. They all have that, they, and there's a, they've, they've they've all taken the same role as Hillary Clinton, right? right? We don't want to hear from them, but that's the most people. So yeah. it's the most votes. It's the biggest political coalition in America that we've decided don't matter, and that bothers me. I think more than what she has to say. That's fair. That's absolutely fair. Um, but
let's move on to talking about something with the opposite problem. Uh, <laughs> okay. Which is Macron in Macron. France. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> All charisma, nothing to say. No, not a lot there. Uh, I actually like him. I have high hopes for him, I guess. Yeah, we all do. I think he's interesting. But the extent to which the left has embraced him as some sort of like political force... Yeah, I believe is misguided. And yeah, it, it, we talked about this. It's like giving Barack Obama the Nobel Prize. Yeah, before he's done anything. anything. Yeah, let Macron do something and let him for because we don't know what his policies are, right? Yeah, and then if you've already like fucking embraced, maybe he comes, if he starts like deregulating France, and, you know, like it's <laughs> going to do, yeah. yeah. Which I think is not a bad idea. Sure, but it's definitely not what I want to see happen here. So you don't want to give like credence, and not in certain sectors. I mean, he, France. I think, I think we could have a pretty robust debate on where deregulation should go. Right, think, but France is a thirty. France is way different than America, yeah. and so there's, uh, you know, it's it's different it's area. A, yeah, yeah, it's with. different. It's a far more regulated society. Yeah, yeah for sure. I. Uh, so if Trump's able to say, look, Macron's deregulating France, we need to, you know, completely get rid of the EPA. <laughs> but, I mean, I feel like we, we talk a lot of like, okay, we, we can't give Trump a talking point. Yeah. He will make up shit. He will make shit. a Trump anyway. But he will it, make I up just, shit. That's just, not an excuse. I just I mean, feel like there's, you know, there's, we should wait until he does something in order to yeah. fall in love with him. Yeah, I, I'll agree with that. I'll agree I, with that. I do find him pleasant to look at and listen to charming guy charming guy yeah uh is that it for doubling down on defeat do you want to move on to our next section yeah Yeah, yeah. uh this is outside the bubble it's our section where we like to talk about sources that we're reading or listening to or taking in um from outside our liberal elitist bubble uh i guess i'll start yeah Um, there are a few um there are a few sources i want to talk about i'll go through them pretty briefly one uh, is Commentary Magazine. Okay. Uh, so I mentioned John Potteretz. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is a, the old Neocon Magazine, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So it's been around for a long time. Um, his father, also Norman, I believe, uh, famous conservative. Uh, John Potteretz writes well. Uh, he has an interesting Twitter feed. Commentary Magazine is well-written. It is conservative, um, but uh, probably firmly within the Never Trump uh, sphere and I think they also had some interesting things. Uh, in particular, what caught my eye was a couple of articles they had released about NATO. They had a really interesting part where they talked a lot about the legacies that of Obama that Trump was carrying on, which I largely agree with. I think uh, the retreat from the world stage is an Obama legacy. I think there's nothing you could do post 2006, post George W. Bush. You actually could no longer have a muscular U.S. try to impose its will on anyone. So, but the retreat from the world stage is an Obama legacy that Trump is continuing and doubling down on. Um, so I would suggest uh, thinking about uh, checking out Commentary Magazine or John Potteretz mm-hmm. um, as a Twitter follower because he's interesting, he's smart, and they also have some interesting takes on pop culture, which I always like. So, <laughs> um, that was my first suggestion. You, re- you ready to join up in the, in the new Cold War? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, good point. Um, uh, the second piece uh, I wanted to talk about, this is something to listen into, and we were just talking about regulation, but uh, the Cato podcast, which is a libertarian think tank, and it's a podcast worth listening to, but in one particular episode, they talk about fuel efficiency standards, and I thought they made a really interesting point. Their whole point was that fuel efficiency standards, the way we think about miles per gallon, um, average fleet uh, efficiency, um, the way that we sort of backed into that regulation was because 
we realized, politicians realized that trying to raise taxes on gasoline was deadly to their <laughs> political futures. Yeah. And rather than taxing the one thing that would incentivize people to be more fuel efficient, we moved into this system of like weird regulation where we try to uh, cap average fuel efficiency for the fleets being produced. Um, what happened, they allege, and I think there's some evidence where this is actually immediately in the 70s, what happens was uh, a lot of car makers started building lighter cars, which effectively actually raised fatality rates. Mm. So I think there's a little bit of controversy around this point. But the whole point, I, the idea is that these regulations, which I think if you come from the left, especially the progressive left, regulations aren't necessarily the most direct way to deal with things, and they're often yield really bad consequences. The issue, though, is that what regulations do allow you to do is abstract the cost or make the costs indirect as opposed to gas tax, which would make costs very direct. So, so you're uh, saying like a, a economic uh, incentive is, is better than like a Sometimes it can be. Yeah. It can be. A, a naked economic incentive sort of yeah. can strike at the real heart of the issue, but the preference, I think, on the left these days is to go for regulations, but regulations simply take away the costs and, and they make it indirect and, and make it inefficient. Right? It's easier and, to understand, too, if you have people saying, solve this problem, and you mm-hmm. say, here's my solve this problem bill, yeah. as opposed to trying to do something oblique, which may address it better, yeah. but doesn't actually have the yeah. means. Yeah, but the cost is passed on one way or another, and it may, because of the way it's it's passed on, it may be even more inefficient, but the cost is indirect, right? And that's why I think people tend to favor regulation blindly because the costs are indirect as opposed to more direct ways of, say, taxing. It's a fair point. I'm also leery of cherry-picking in favor of, like, broad claims against deregulation, which may... That's 100% fair. I think regulation is one of those things that's really complicated. You have to know a lot of details, but we shouldn't embrace it whole hog like i mean there yeah, are there yeah, are yeah. real consequences totally fair i think smart regulation is important i don't know if i'm against regulation yeah no that's fair i, I don't think i'm against regulation <coughs> i just think that there are cases yeah. where it no, was a really sure. bad yeah, idea yeah. uh so uh the third thing that i wanted to talk about it's a really brief thing um so there was uh general kelly uh, the head of uh Homeland Security is a man I don't love. I actually, uh, I really don't like him as the head of Homeland Security. I, I think his attitude towards um, the messiness of uh, Homeland Security and immigrant, immigrant regulations come from a mindset of the military, and he hasn't understood that political reality is often messy and prioritization means a lot. Um, and so military law is absolute, whereas I think civilian law high-minded thinking or ideological thinking that is expected to dissolve once the rubber meets the road, right? Like, we want to say that we are a society that stands for this rule, but in effect, we're willing to practice a much more messy version of that. And that has not... uh, It's very clear that uh, uh, General Kelly does not think that way. But, uh, in his defense, I saw him on uh, Fox News... uh, Fox Friends and whatever. The Fox News uh, Friends in the morning. Fox and Friends. Fox and Friends, show. (laughs) Um, as, if, as if Fox is like a charming like yeah, lovable Fox character Fox and Friends <laughs> show it is a terrible show it is right. uh, obsequious um, and so they had him for a memorial day which you're just expecting to be like flag porn and so he's a general um, and they wanted to talk to him about his son who he lost um, so one they try to get him to like have like a real breakdown moment they're kind of badgering like what do you think of your son how do you think of him every day and he's just like he pauses just for a second and he just goes on he talks about his son in a most matter-of-fact tone and how much 
he misses him, but he he doesn't give in to that like he doesn't uh, have an Oprah moment. Yeah, he doesn't have an Oprah moment. He just yeah. isn't having that shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I really respected that. Um, and two, it, they're talking about Memorial Day, and you can tell he has real contempt for Memorial Day because he <laughs> fucking lives it every day because he lost his son. So he's like, it's just something that you should remember when you're at the beach or at a mattress sale or whatever. And it's a brilliant line. And I was like, oh my god, this I really respect that point of view. If you think Memorial Day is like degrading the sacrifice your family made, or uh, I thought that was a really excellent point. It's really it's not even a point he's making, but it's very clear that's what he thinks. And uh, yeah, so I'll give Kelly his due on this point. But those are my those are my outside the bubble. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's always good to realize that these people are humans, and yeah. the hu- their humanity is a strategic wedge we can use against the oppressive <laughs> civilian government. Uh, <laughs> the, my outside the bubble uh, uh, this week are two things. One is a podcast. Uh, it's a really comprehensive, uh, nerdy-ass podcast called Revolutions. Yeah, I was just listening to that. By this guy, Mike Duncan. Yeah. Uh, I would say it is... Airs on so it's analysis of revolutions. Airs on it's a kind of a center right podcast, which is why I recommend it. It's center left in that it is detailed, specific, and fact driven. How's that? But it's uh, I think that's not fair to the center right. Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever the center right is nowadays, but I I find it great. It's really interesting. Uh, it, so revolutions podcast is just he's going through like ev- all the revolutions of the past three hundred years, right? Yeah. Uh, start. He starts with uh, English, English Civil War, yeah, the English Civil War. Uh, and he's up to, I guess, like the revolutions in the Caribbean and then Mexico mm-hmm. uh, these days. Just covers them, you know, 30 minutes at a time, just like little, it's sequential. But a series of almost, sometimes 10 or 20 episodes per, per revolution. revolution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the longest one, he gives the most analysis on the French Revolution, yeah. which is correct. It is the most interesting one, yeah. uh, in my opinion. Maybe the Russian Revolution is more interesting, but the French Revolution is amazing. It's yeah. like my favorite subject. You know, it's an economic analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about taxes. It's about the kind of people that are in charge in these places. It's not really philosophical very much. It's mainly about the social stratifications that have led to the revolutionary. Yeah, I wouldn't consider it center-right, though. I don't know. I mean, other than sort of being skeptical about what revolutions are. Yeah, I would say it doesn't. He doesn't do a very good do- job of drilling down into the day to day lives of actual people. He has kind of a great man mm-hmm. theory yeah. of, of revolution, and yeah. he's far more, I think, dependent on first person narratives than he is the actual like nitty gritty yeah. of the That's historical right. reality. Which is why I kind of consider it the center right tradition of history, though yeah. history is more interesting than that yeah but it's no howard zen how's that you know <laughs> I like <Howard. laughs> anyway we can agree to disagree but i think it's a, i think it's a really i think we can agree that it's worth listening to yeah uh, uh, revolutions is worth i'm actually listening to it uh, just by coincidence um, yeah, yeah i was listening to it at a regular speed and i was like this is terrible yeah um just by accident um and but i realized that like the minimum speed you need to listen to it is a 1.25 <laughs> like i mean you have to speed that up and it's a little bit more information but trust me it makes it there's no it's it's a it's very detailed and very like sequential one yeah. day it's like a wikipedia page yeah. right uh that he's kind good. of reading it's good. It. It just, but it's better than that it's like yeah. more well sourced and yeah. he's got like old alternate sure. theories and there's you know nuggets and tidbits of it's exactly the kind of thing i like i yeah. like but uh, uh, so highly recommended. The uh, 
uh, other thing I wanted to recommend was anecdote as Trump met Pope Francis. Pope Francis gave him as a gift one of the books he'd written. It was an encyclical on climate change. Okay. Uh, I, I heard of this. That was his yeah. gift, right? Yeah. Uh, which was seen as a fuck you gesture from the left and seen as like a conciliatory gesture from there. I don't know what the right thinks about the Pope, but it was definitely a fuck you gesture. <laughs> as someone who's, I recommend anybody read this book. Mm-hmm. It's very, very interesting. Uh, it's a great encyclical, I yeah. would say. Uh, and it's about not just climate change, but change in general, the rapid changes that are just occurring throughout the world with the internet with mm-hmm. just everything and how humanity is not prepared for them and we're all we've all gone fucking crazy and we need to slow down yeah that's the point of the and it's you know as somebody who was elected into office as a result of these rapid changes that we're not accustomed to yeah. he's sort of see it's like saying to you're like you are an example of the human soul gone like polluted <laughs> mr trump uh <laughs> um uh, interesting, yeah, I'll check that out. I, I don't think of the Pope as coming from the right, though. I guess maybe by just by his nature. But... Yeah, this particular Pope. It's kind of a left. Yeah, but I mean, you know, the Catholic Church thinks in centuries. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... It's it's an, but that's interesting. He's he's targeted the current moment as a moment of too fast change and, and growth and not enough analysis and. Uh, trying to like sit with what's happening in a spiritual sense and see oh. what's good or bad uh, actually or just default have taken for granted that a lot of things are like good mm-hmm. when we actually have no idea what their costs are you know for instance social media is it more uh, the printing press or is it more tobacco you right know? we have no idea I mean, right. it's, the longitudinal studies haven't been done but we've all embraced it yeah. as if it is you know there's no without trying to figure out what's what's actually going on I think it's worth reading, and I okay. think it's uh, it's interesting. And if, as you read it, you will laugh. Yeah. As as this is what has been given to <laughs> Donald Trump, who will never read it, no. who probably is not capable of reading it. Yeah. So is that it for outside the box? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, this is a perfect transition. Yes. Yeah, segues since... right into. So for random shit, we wanted to talk about religion, uh, and... politics, and religion. Yes, really fun. Small, podcast. small <laughs> topics. Um, but uh, since you were the one who suggested it, let's. Uh, what were you thinking of? I don't know. I was just what curious. What were you thinking of? I was just curious. Like, what is your religious tradition and upbringing? Sure. Um, so I, I'm Hindu. Uh, yeah. My parents are both pretty religious people. Hinduism is, is is a very, very amorphous religion. It's very heterodox, and so it's it's often hard to define what it really means. Um, I think, and it is certainly very old. So um, it's uh, so it has a lot of practices that are very syncretic that it's picked up from different religions and different regions and the evolution of time and it's never had a reformation or it's never had a papacy to like clean up some of this stuff so it can uh Although so someone say buddhism was a kind of reformation yeah absolutely i i think that's not unfair um but i also think that uh hinduism it really took in a lot of the preachings of, of buddha so like like early Buddhism, right, right. yeah. So it's I'm not sure that Catholicism did the same for Protestants. No. Um, so it, and again, but, but then again, Martin Luther was no Buddha. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so but Hinduism has this practice of like taking in a lot of religion. I could talk about it for a while, but you oh, let's talk about your religion. Oh, I mean, I was raised Catholic, and did you go? So did you go to a Catholic high school? Did you go no, to Catholic no. public school? Did and you go to? But you went to Sunday services. Yeah, it was an altar server, and so I went two or three times a week growing up. Yeah. Uh, 
do you still believe? Are you uh, you don't go to church? Is now. it possible to believe in Catholicism? That's a question. Yes, a lot it of it's is. so. I mean, that's part of the central to the religion, right? Because right. a lot of it's like actually a mystery and actually yeah. like uh, unbelievable, right? Like that is the definition of faith for a Catholic, right? right? Like to believe this, you would have to do actual violence to your critical reasoning facilities, and you have been gifted with these by God. So, mm-hmm. do we believe or do we just act as if we do? I think you're someone who has been clearly shaped by... Uh, yeah, I can't help it. Yeah, yeah by Catholic practice, yeah. by uh, Catholic the Catholic thought. Church. Yeah. yeah, how much do you take away from it? I mean, do you do you find yourself... Are you, uh, I don't know, are you an atheist at it, the same time? It or? is a worthy adversary, Catholicism. Yeah. I, is, it, is it possible to be an atheist? I don't know. I, I, I disbelieve sometimes in the possibility of atheism. It's, I'm definitely an agnostic. Oh, uh, so I'm definitely an atheist. Are you really? Yeah, yes. absolutely. But I am someone who actually really likes religion, and I yeah. think it's really important. I'm yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. I am a pro-religion atheist. I pro-religion just, atheist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so okay. if that means anything, I and I'll, I'll get back. I mean, I think to me, my parents' upbringing. I think they were, uh, they were from sort of a liberal wing of Hinduism. So yeah. like it's it's tolerant. It wants to learn about other religions. It believes in incorporating maybe other religious practices into right, your own right, belief. Right, yeah. And so uh, a lot of that is that ca- that can be an aspect of Hinduism as its practice, but I think it's also an aspect of how my parents practice their religion. And part of that has to do with not being part of a conservative community or not being tied to a community because they came to the U.S. right when they were relatively young in their twenties, and so they had to kind of redefine what it means to practice a faith where you don't have a lot of other practitioners around. Yeah, especially a faith like that, which is so. Yeah, we're not of the book. We yeah. are we are very foreign. There are certain things that just make it alienating, right? So we were vegetarian. Uh, my parents, my mom remained vegetarian her whole life, and Hindu vegetarian, so no fish, no uh, doesn't eat eggs. We grew up in the South. It was really hard <laughs> for my mom. My dad ate meat, I think, for a little while. I think maybe in the late seventies and eighties, and at some point he just he oh just, he gave it up. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Was it because he thought he was gaining weight? <laughs> he looked at me portly son and he said I can't do that I can't do that um, my uh, I would say my parents didn't bring me up as a uh, as a vegetarian so yeah. that's one of the great demarcations huh. of the religion yeah, yeah, yeah. so they they assumed I was going to assimilate so neither my sister nor myself had to eat keep a vegetarian diet and so my mom had to learn how to cook meat and we were having to taste it um, which is why I think that's my meat was... so like noble somehow. <laughs> that's like a beautiful story. Yeah. <laughs> so my meat was always a little dry, you know? <laughs> and this is me being a fussy ass child. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so uh, our great kind of story of the Indian community at the time was uh, my mom. One of my favorite dishes was something called kima mutter. All it is is beef and peas, and my mom had to uh, learn from uh, our her friend who was a Muslim how to cook it. And so I had an auntie come over and teach my mom how to cook beef. That's such a bullshit New Yorker short story. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I hate the New Yorker. I fucking lived it. It's not worth telling again. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, okay, so what do you think you've you've gained from Catholicism? I don't know. Okay. It's weird like that. It's such a... You know, like, universities, hospitals, these are Catholic (laughs) institutions, right? It's built into the fabric of, like, intellectual life in the West in a way that is, like invisible and tremendous you know and like derided. they and derided. they run the casino right like in a way that's invisible and, yeah. and so i respect that i'm not uh ahistorical enough to 
to shit on Catholicism in a way that I think a lot of former Catholics do. Yeah. It's like, I think there's some good things there. I think there's like a vibrant intellectual tradition that leads you to Camus and includes Camus, yeah. you know? It's focus on good works is an interesting philosophical discipline that I can't shake, right? Yeah. I feel guilty when I've done something shitty and mm. I feel good when I've done something good, right? And I, I despise that in myself. I right. wish I could just like live and like be a, a pure esteem like, uh, <laughs> like Oscar Wilde or Trent Reznor. Yeah. Um, of, the, of the books of the faith I say I would say or, or the fates of the book rather I say Catholicism is like my favorite. Oh, um, so oh, I, uh, I better, better than Judaism I'd say Judaism is pretty I'm, I'm, I think Judaism is like, I think the theology I, I just I understand it more yeah, uh, Catholicism. Your wife was raised Catholic too. My right? wife is, yeah. is raised Catholic. She doesn't practice. I think she mm. likes certain aspects of the religion. Her mother, my mother-in-law, is really Catholic, but I think also in the so- social way, like how yeah, much it means yeah, yeah. culture and community, yeah, yeah. Um, rather than theologically really compelled by it. What I like about Catholicism is that you don't get to leave it. They decide <laughs> when you leave, um, <laughs> which is interesting, because it's like, you know, I can call myself a Catholic till I die, and I, actually I like, doubt that I'm going to be excommunicated. One of the threads I like about Catholicism that I think is still really important is sort of its anti-humanism, mm. right? Like, I mean, we man is not the measure of all things, right. Like, and I think it, it was they were forced to stand up against the Renaissance, and I think in a, <laughs> in a way that I think is actually really important, like, people are not the measure of all things, and when you try to abstract beyond that, I think it, it's hard, right? Because it's humans trying to think what's beyond humans. But uh, I think it's a really important, uh, almost spiritual lesson, right? Like, I think it's really important to understand that, you know, we are small beings in this world and this universe. And I think that's that's a spiritual lesson that I think that Catholicism returns to. Um, and it's, it's a really important one. Well, how is that not served by Hinduism, though? I mean, I feel like that's... A similar um, insight. That um, not... I think, well, I, Catholicism has that historic yeah. tradition, right? Yeah. And, um, I think that Hinduism does that in some ways. Um, I don't think it's a central tenet, right? Like, yeah. I'm not a fan of saying that all religions teach the same thing. I don't think all religions No, no, same. I agree with you. I'm just saying, um, as far as that insight goes, that seems central um, to Hinduism as well. Yeah, I, I don't know if the spiritual, like our spiritual realm is, is, is thought of as being different um, than our society so a lot of how you exist spiritually or who you are spiritually is uh, is often reflected on who you are what is happening to you and where you are in society so that's it's a different change um i would say the things that i got from hinduism are something more along the lines of a sort of a notion of this two shall pass Mm, right like there's long cycles long traditions a deep comfort with kind of understanding the stages of life so there's a real sense of uh, of stages and cycles and also you know aging like i think in some ways it may just be an older religion or different ways but when i think about how my father is aging like i think about like the lessons that i learned that this is this was inevitable this is and there's a certain amount of stoicism that comes with that that this is this is what life brings out so i think i often see this in western society and it just may be modern society they really have a difficulty with aging and i'm not saying that it's easy but i think there's a different attitude towards time Mm-hmm. Um, that is both good and bad. How do you seat yourself? I guess, like as a, in, as for a spiritual practice, do you do a, do you meditate? Do you pray? Uh, I guess you don't pray, but do you? yeah, I don't pray. <laughs> um, I, I don't pray. Um, I, I would do meditation only for the sense of like personal tranquility. Right, I've right, thought right. about it. Angela does it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It's like I don't think of myself as spiritual. I actually right. think that one of the things that's happened in modern sort of a religious society is that the vocabulary about 
being quote unquote spiritual when people call themselves spiritual. It's, it's actually disgusting. really yeah, it's yeah, the opposite it's, of what I would say. Well, it's and like, it's also just it's enervated. It's yeah, no yeah. longer as rich as it once was yeah, yeah, because yeah. spiritual meant that you were thinking about your place in the world, right? And, and fear and trembling. Yeah, 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 you could fear it, or you could, yeah. or, or, or and one way of thinking about Hinduism is you're very regimented, right? Like mm. you're, you're, you're very much slotted. Your world, your place in the world is slotted. Uh, so it's not always a good thing, but I think you know, thinking about where you, uh, thinking about where you are in the world, as opposed to something that is less defined than immediately like where you are physically and where you are in terms of society and its hierarchies. That kind of vocabulary and being able to discuss and think about. Uh, both meaning and deeper existential issues, I think that's just gone away. And I think that's unfortunate. And, uh, and that's why I'm pro-religion. I think it forces a lot of people to think about what their purpose is, what their what their life is. Um, it, it answers questions, but it also forces people to think why. And I think that's a really important thing. Uh, you know, a lot of times, I mean, like, being a culture that's driven by, like, empirical fact-driven kind of... You're such a better Catholic than I am. <laughs> I, I love Catholicism, right? That's the whole thing. Like, right, oh, but, if it's forcing us to question, then it right. must be good. Right. But I get, to si- I, I get to sit on the sidelines. Yeah. Okay? Like, I didn't really grow up with that. I don't have great senses of guilt. I think these are really fundamental ways of how people should think. They should think about themselves, quote-unquote spiritually, but, you know, and they should search for deeper meaning. These are not issues that science can deliver or our modern society can deliver. And and religion was often a plot for that. And I think that we've sort of lost that ability to talk about that stuff. You keep by your door <laughs> packs of, like, nuts yeah. and trail mix That's to true. give out to people on the train who ask you for handouts yeah, regularly. Yeah. That was actually Angela's idea, yeah. Yeah. Catholic as hell. Catholic as hell. <laughs> um, get me in when you're in. in, in, when you're I'll, in. I'll lift you up. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Peter. Yeah. Um, Put in a good word. Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about going actually back to church every so often. Yeah, yeah, Angela yeah. Angela wants to go back. Do you enjoy a Catholic service? Do you enjoy the ritual? I like Catholics. I like the community of it. Yeah. You know, the ritual of it is so... I can fucking give mass. It's so, like, in me that I can't... I, I just kind of tune out, you yeah. know? There's nothing to it. Yeah. I mean, Catholic sermon is typically, like, abstruse analysis of some, like, yeah. you know, uh, passage in the... It, mm-hmm. It's... Uh, there's not a lot of hellfire or, you know, every once in a while it'll just be about, like, something amusing. An amusing story. <laughs> right. With a slight spiritual uh, anecdote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like Flannery O'Connor, I have no patience for, I guess, like, secular humanism or, like, Protestant flimflammery. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess I like my religion with blood and, like, mystery to it. I can't help that. Um, I've always been drawn to religions that sort of instill a certain amount of humi- human, uh, like uh, humility, rather. Yeah, yeah like yeah, that's yeah. why I think secular humanism is kind of terrible. But like, yeah, but I also, I, it's what I am. But like, I, yeah. I just find that humanism is a horrible, arrogant way to live life. No, for sure. I mean, I'm inspired by Renaissance figures who are able to like both, yeah, keep their Catholicism and like evade it through aesthetic trickery and like, <laughs> good bribes like i you know i'm i'm sicilian like right. i i i feel very much angry vengeful people yeah i feel very much like i should be able to pay using my crime dollars <laughs> in order to like wash myself of my sins well religion 
yeah, anything else you want to say about religion? Nah, I, I guess not. I mean, we could talk. That could be a whole separate yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could talk about religion all day long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think we'll do that. Um, yeah. It, and, well, in that case, uh, that's it for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you again for uh, tuning in. This has been Room of Requirement, episode seventeen. Follow us on Twitter. Um, I guess we have Facebook site. We have Reddit page. We we'll hope to get some guests coming up soon. Like yeah, maybe absolutely. a summer of guests. Hopefully. Yeah, that yeah. may be helpful. Yeah. But yeah, again, thank you guys for tuning in, and yeah. thanks to Kevin Carter for producing our music. Yeah. <laughs>